Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network in Italian Studies. I'm your host, Kate Driscoll, Assistant Professor of Italian and Romance Studies at Duke University. It is a marvelous joy to engage in conversation today with my dear colleague in the truest and fondest sense, Dr. Rosine Giles, Assistant Professor of Music at Duke University and curator of the Duke University Musical Instrument Collections. A musicologist with a specialty in early modern musical culture, Dr. Giles' research examines the aesthetic, professional, and personal relationships between poets and musicians of the Italian 17th century. Her recent monograph, and the subject of today's discussion, is titled Monteverdi and the Marvelous Poetry, Sound, and Representation, published with Cambridge University Press in 2023. This book contributes to the histories of music and literature by arguing that the controversial experiments of 17th century poets had a profound influence on techniques in musical composition, most notably in the works of Claudio Monteverdi. A separate forthcoming book titled Lettera Amorosa, Musical Love Letters in Early Modern Italy, is under contract with Cambridge University Press and explores the musical history of epistolary poetry. Elsewhere, Dr. Giles has published on music and philosophy in the Renaissance, memory and orality in the notation of medieval music, and the relationship between music and devotional practice in the 17th century. So, Rosine, welcome. It's lovely to have you on the New Books channel. It's a pleasure. So, first off, um, I'd like to just invite you to share a few words really about your own journey, kind of academic or otherwise, towards the book that we have today. How did the idea for Monteverdi and the Marvelous kind of come to you? And um, maybe when did Monteverdi kind of make his first mark on your research and kind of general interests? Certainly. So, um, Essentially, I guess I, in order to answer that question, I'd probably have to go back to when I was an undergrad, which is very scary. Um, but I was, um, I studied music and uh, Renaissance studies at the University of Toronto. And while I was, I was mostly committed to to studying music and performance, um, I had not been introduced to earlier repertories and definitely not to the music of Monteverdi. Um, but that happened kind of towards the end of my undergrad when I started to play historical music and I realized there was this whole world of, of wonderful um, repertoire that I wasn't really, it wasn't in the core repertoire of what I was learning. Um, and so my very first interaction with Monteverdi's music happened um, right at the end of my undergrad. I was doing a sort of a, a summer program in Vancouver on early music. And that was a, it was, it was the beginning of an anniversary year. It was 2010. So this is uh, um, coinciding with an anniversary of Monteverdi's famous 1610 Vespers. And so there were all these performances as part of this program that I wasn't really a part of because I was uh, more in the instrumental as opposed to vocal music part of this, but I got to hear for the very first time Monteverdi's vocal music and never heard it before really, or kind of only peripherally had an experience with it, but it was really astounding. I'd never, I didn't even speak Italian at the time. I didn't know what they were saying. It didn't matter. There was something kind of really electric about the music and I could tell that it was really special. And that was a really pivotal moment because I realized that 
while my primary engagement with music was actually making music, which it still it still is to a great extent, there was this whole other way that I could engage with music and the history of music that wasn't necessarily I'm going to play it, but I'm going to kind of figure out how musicians express things, how the relationship between poetry and music works. And uh, so that really opened up a whole uh, amazing avenue of 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 research for me. And that's where it started. That's where I kind of went to the dark side, as it were, and became <laughs> became more of an academic. <laughs> I love that, right? I mean, we, we, we always say that music and performance is transformative, but in your case, right, it, it really was, even if it lulled you into, right, it's, uh, it's seductive ways. Um, it, and it's wonderful. literally seductive in this case. It literally is, right? And, and it's marvelously seductive, too, as we'll talk about. Um, so, so the book is just so lovely and fascinating and, and really, uh, what, what announces itself as needing to be read right away is of course the book covers image. And this is such a handsome and really stunning, there it is, you're showing it to me, this is so beautiful. Um, right, the image by Anibale Karachi representing a scene that I know we'll probably come back to and talk about in a few minutes, um. But it's not a portrait of Monteverdi, and and rather this is really about the content of the book and your really just um, eloquently precise argument about the marvelous in action, what it does with time, how it can suspend time and expand time. So, what led to the decision to make this the book cover? Um, was this a a, con a conviction you reached early on, or maybe a little bit later in the writing process? Right when did when it kind of hit you? Well, I mean, just as a general comment, I one of the primary motivations for writing the book at all was was obviously to explore the way that a musician reads poetry, but also definitely how a musician interprets stories in the same way that a painter, in this case, interprets stories. So the, the cover image is a depiction of Armida and Rinaldo, which is from uh, Tasso's Gerusalemme Liberata. And Monteverdi set excerpts from this epic poem to music. And one of the main kind of, uh, I guess, things that I discovered as I wrote the book was that when you take a story and you tell it in music, it really changes the nuance of the relationship between the characters. It changes the way that you yourself might identify with the story. And it changes the way that you perceive what the characters think about what's happening in a story. So there's a lot of different ways that a musician can reinterpret a story in the same way that a painter can take something out of literature, in this case from Renaissance epic, and sort of interpret it for you, present it to you in a way that um, suggests certain things that maybe the text alone doesn't. So it creates this really interesting nexus of music, literature, and visual art. So that's kind of the main reason why I wanted to pick some sort of uh, painting that um, does essentially what Monteverdi does in music. Obviously, you can't put a piece of music on the front cover unless you put musical notation, but I, I kind of wanted to have that to suggest that material difference between these three arts all at once, essentially. So actually, and what I what drew me to this episode is is just simply that um, so in Monteverdi's third book of Madrigals, he sets several episodes from this epic poem that the that the that Karachi based his painting on, um, and I spent a lot of time in the book talking about this, uh, the the literary source and all of this sort of thing. 
Um, and I had originally actually wanted a different painting. I know it's terrible uh, for the front cover, which was depicting exactly the same scene. Um, it's a slightly later painter, um, Finolio, Domenico Finolio, from a whole series of paintings that was done in the 1630s um, of scenes from Tasso's Jerusalemme. Um, but the thing that is that links them in, in common, which um, you can see in this image, is that uh, Rinaldo is kind of leaning back into Armida's lap, and he is looking directly at her, but she is looking at him through a mirror. And in the uh, Finolio painting, there's a really pained kind of look on her face. And um, it's interesting because at this point, Ronaldo is still with her. They're still kind of in love. He hasn't left her yet. But at the same time, there's a kind of force, like presaging essentially of what's going to happen later just by the look on her face. Um, and not to mention the fact that the book is really about representation. How do you represent anything pretty much in visually, in language, in music, and crucially, how do those three modes of signification interact? Um, but it's just fascinating that he's looking directly at her, but she's looking at him through this reflective medium of, as if to say that the kind of artificial reflection or representation is almost just as powerful as the real thing. Um, and also in the book, very similar, and I kind of connect the cover image to this, is the frontispiece to um, uh, a rhetorician, his name is Tesaro, uh, from the 17th century. He has a frontispiece to his book on 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 literature, on rhetoric, and it's, it's, it's essentially a picture of a woman who represents literature looking at the sun through a telescope. Um, and she is looking at the sun, and the sun has sunspots on it. And the whole kind of uh, message here is that the sunspots are real, but you can't see them directly. You have to look through the instrument in order to be able to perceive them. Because if you looked at it directly, you would burn your eyes and you definitely wouldn't be able to see it. So it's this play on, you know, is the refracted mirror image or lens, is that the thing that gets us closer to the truth? Or is it the supposedly natural power of our senses alone? Mm hmm. That's beautiful. That's really lovely. No, that 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 um that frontispiece is really striking, and you include that in the book, so um readers can definitely look forward to, to to seeing that and then reading your interpretation of it. But that was a really nice kind of parallel to to the cover. Um, so so sticking still then with the cover, right? The the image that that you invite us into the book in, having come from Tasso, um, drifting down now right to your title and really like that, that keyword of multiverity and the marvelous. So, um. I wonder if now's maybe sort of a good time, granted that our conversation will kind of only get more complex and exciting as we go on, to maybe just take a step back and give an overview of The Marvelous right, in context. For anyone who's not a specialist, um, The Marvelous could, you know, maybe maybe use some framing in terms of how you really see it evolving in the 16th and 17th centuries um, across these three medium that you just, the media that you just brought out, right? Poetry, music, and, and, uh, and art. Definitely. So the marvelous, it's it's an English word, but in the context uh, or in the context of early modern Italy, it was called meraviglia. So it, it can mean and did mean at this time a kind of cluster of different ideas. Marvel is certainly one of them. That's what, you know, uh, is the most common translation. But there's also other kinds of words in English that refer to this 
particular phenomenon, astonishment, and really interestingly, also the word curiosity. There's a sort of cerebral, in addition to emotional engagement with, with this idea. So um, to be astonished, but also to have your curiosity provoked, to be kind of in awe, um, there's a sort of in a much later concept of the sublime is kind of it's sort of like a forerunner, I suppose, to that. And it goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, the fact that to marvel or to be in awe of something is the root of philosophy, essentially. So it's not only it's not just something that is astonishing or that surprises you, that sort of shocks you somehow, but it's something in art or literature or or even in nature that presents you with with a with, with with something which is so overwhelming that it makes you question what you thought that you knew. So there's a sort of bewilderment, but the idea definitely is that that you are in awe and there's a kind of humility about it, but that it propels you into some sort of new understanding. When you're presented with something that's so overwhelming or it's weird or it's incongruous or something like that, but it kind of sucks you into figuring out how it happens. And this is very common in, uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries because of um, the kind of rhetoric of um, the ambiguous, like it's sort of, or the illusory, the sort of illusion, something is an illusion and you are, you're not just you're not just taken aback, you're actually kind of drawn into figuring out how it works and things like this. So um, this is very, very, very much in the um, in the literary debates of, of this particular time. You know, is it is it the role of art to astonish to to for you to you kind of marvel at it? Um, or is that just a first step towards some sort of much more rational engagement? Because there's this push and pull between something which is irrational and something which is rational, uh, as if to say, do you take the thing that, that you are marveling at and do you fix it? Do you make sure that you make sense of it and you sort of put it in a box and you say, ah, there it is. Um, so then one of the main questions that I was that I was thinking about when I was realizing that this is this is very important for music of this time is what is it about music that makes you marvel in visual arts i mean there's certainly all kinds of things which range from the technical the colors for instance or the shapes all the way up to the sort of much more um intellectual such as you know on the cover of this painting by karachi we are we can marvel not only at how beautiful it is how lifelike it is how the colors work but we can also marvel at the way the story is depicted um so there are ways of course that this can happen in literature and in visual arts but music is sort of weird because it happens in time so is it just something that's really loud is it just something that's like shocking because it has huge contrasts in it or something like that i i realized that when you manipulate stories and characters in real time as it is in music that can be something that is truly astonishing and in a way it kind of explains a lot of the stylistic idiosyncrasies of the music of this time in the same way that that same concept works to explain certain fa certain facets of visual art and literature um and the two kind of main ways in which this works which is sort of like the main claim of the of the book is that we kind of marvel at music or at least in the music of Monteverdi as I see it in with two different ways in the sense that the composer manipulates time you can take for instance a moment like let's say the moment of seeing your beloved or whatever and you can make it longer 
So that does that's impossible in 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 real life. But in music, you can stretch and compress time. You can you can manipulate it that way because that's that's what it's made out of. It's made out of sound and time essentially um and then the other thing is you can manipulate perspectives you can you can see yourself as someone else you can hear your own voice as theirs um and that's also kind of impossible in the real world but you can do this through um through art um and that really does seem to be something that artists and musicians are playing with in the in this time um and so it's it, it is also kind of a way to show and inter and show the inner life of someone in addition to the kind of way that they interact with the world, um, and this is all done in performance. So despite the fact that it's yes, it's a kind of engagement with all of the marvels of the impossibilities of life, I suppose it's performed, and so you do that. You you consider all of those kind of. <laughs> the, the the irrationality of what goes on in your head versus what's actually happening in the real world you do that yourself and you kind of feel seen that way but you're also doing it with other people so it's actually something that is a mechanism for human connection which is so fascinating oh so fascinating yeah i mean i i, I want to come back to to precisely that point uh in a few uh, minutes, but I mean, you. So you've brought us now to to the core of what the argument in the book is really about, and and it, it is about the kind of the proliferation of both perspective and temporality, and the beauty that music can control, manipulate, surprise, enchant, and bring us to marvel, always with the attention towards what this, what all of these effects are on the listener, um, which is so tied to poetry's increasingly. Uh, attentive glance towards towards the listener too. So these two tracks really uh, intersect nicely in in your research and also in the in the 16th and 17th century. Um, so since you are such a beautiful writer, I'm going to quote uh, two um, uh, passages where you, where where you where you kind of explain this in in similar and also uh, other terms. So on page seven, uh, you're describing the phenomenon of multi-layered voices and simultaneous um, temporality. So you write that. Quote, the sound of the marvelous encompasses modes of representation that lend a multivalent temporality to the contradictions and ambiguities typical of poetry in this period. And with regard to this um, question of temporality, just, just two pages later, you continue, quote, Monteverdi superimposes different temporal perspectives and effectively transforms the sense of chronology and sequence into one of space and place by making different times visible through sound, the past and present and future can not only coexist, but they can be considered simultaneously and at different speeds, which is just so beautiful to think about. Um, and you continue, right? Essentially, the marvelous in music brings the ultimate impossibility, right? The stretching, compressing, and seeing time into the realm of possibility. And like I said, in kind of the preface to this question is that all of this is done with the listener in mind and, and, and what all of this means to the listener's ears. So um, I'm curious about whether this focus on possible time or possible times, um, did it reach you as you were listening to Monteverdi's music? You, you, you kind of described that sort of transformative experience you had in Vancouver. Um, so the the attention to time, did that hit you kind of while you yourself was listening, were, were listening and thinking about Monteverdi's relationship to listeners, literally across space and time? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. So I'll, I'll just start by saying something about that, the listening part, and, and also 
this is definitely how I came to this. When were any listener essentially is, and is is presented with a kind of music that is unfamiliar, which I definitely did in that moment where I heard Monteverdi for the first time. So for all the listeners who've never heard Monteverdi's music, this is this is for you essentially. So when you're presented with 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 music which is unfamiliar, it's really old. It's in a style that you don't necessarily have any experience with. It's in a language that you don't understand or maybe you understand but you you don't have that much experience listening to it sung, which is kind of a different kind of thing. As you're listening to something that you've never heard before, basically the kind of psychology of it is that you're hearing it in time. Um, let's say, you know, you, you're not looking at the score or anything like that. You're sort of just taking it in as it is. You're hearing something. And the only kind of temporal reference you have in your mind is to go back to something that you heard just a while, just a minute ago. And so a lot of the appreciation of music and the form, formal organization of music has to do with repetition. It has to do with hearing something once, kind of taking that in, not really understanding maybe what it means or why it's the way it is. Then maybe hearing some, the same thing again or something very similar, but it's slightly changed. So as a listener, you realize, oh, I heard that a minute ago, or I heard something like that, or I heard that with one person instead of two people. And now I'm comparing it in real time to what I'm hearing right now. Um, so there's a kind of, um, basically a, a, the engagement of it happens in a kind of temporal way. You're, 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 you're thinking back to something that you heard before and to give a really, really basic example of, of what I mean by this whole thing about visualizing times and speeds and, and all of this kind of thing, a really good example of this which is definitely in a lot of love poetry from this period, is the concept of rumination. So something happens to you and or you have some sort of interaction with somebody and then you go home and you replay it in your head <laughs> over and over again. Maybe it's no, something really stressing you out. Maybe it's something that you maybe you just simply really enjoyed it or or whatever. You you replay the scene in your head uh, for all kinds of different reasons. And when you do that, it takes on a slightly different nuance. You're trying to kind of work out some something that you experienced again and again. Music's really, really good at this because it, it works on materials that are not syntactically related like languages. Um, so that kind of thing, that kind of, um, let's take love, for example. Great example because like all the poetry is about it. And rumination is something that people often do when they are in love, in a new relationship, whatever it is. Something happens. You have a minimum of information. You go home and you like fill in all of the gaps, right? You're you're going over it <laughs> over and over in your head. Okay, um, music is so good. This is why there are so many love songs. Music is great at doing this. Music can actually mimic that kind of a pr process in a cathartic way, in a way that is not necessarily going to drive you crazy, although we all know that music can drive us crazy sometimes, especially if if it sort of has that quality to it. But essentially, it, it represents a very 
common pro- cerebral process that is bound up in emotions and experiences. Because in music, you can put s- stuff, you can stack things one on top of the other. You can take a melody, you can make it twice as long, you can make it twice as short, you can put it on top of each other. And as long as it kind of relates to each other in a particular style and a particular practice, it can make sense. So music is really good at taking various fragments of your experience of anything but looks let's say love for for a a good example and actually giving an in time like simulation of what those emotions and thoughts feel like all together so that's kind of just a very very basic example of 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 why of how this works but i should also say you know to be a little bit more specific in terms of what i get into in the book almost all of the repertoire um, that I talk about here is are what are called madrigals. Madrigals are really short vocal pieces for usually five voices. Some of them have musical instruments. Some of the later ones do. The earlier ones tend to just be a cappella. But what is so uh, specific, what it what what makes them really good at what I just described is that they're miniatures. They're like three minutes. They don't tend to be very long. They're they're a way that a composer kind of zooms in on a particular emotion, on a particular narrative, on a on some something. Um, and a lot of the texts that Monteverdi sets are kind of excerpts of of bigger stories or 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 collections of things. Um, and so because they kind of zoom in on something like what did so-and-so this particular character think about what happened you get you, this the the epic poem can give you a whole narration of of action but the madrigal can give you like what's what Tancredi felt in that one little moment which is in the text of course but the madrigal as a self-contained entity as a genre just just uh, makes you consider that one thing in isolation and so it changes it it it, it is like a um, an enactment of the relationship between interpersonal stuff and internal narrative um because that because it you know it's this interaction between stories that are told and stories that go on inside of your head so there's a really kind of cathartic therapeutic <laughs> aspect to this and maybe that's that's kind of how I got into this but um it definitely gets it 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 i guess one of my main motivations for focusing on the madrigal and and have coming up with this kind of conceptual interpretation was that the language whether you're talking musical language poetic language of this particular period is often described as kind of overly ornamental over-the-top, exaggerated, baroque, whatever adjective you want to use. Um, and and this is specifically having to do with the poetics of the marvelous, like as if to say it's supposed to be this kind of oversaturation of style in order to kind of uh, shake you up out of your boredom or something like that. And it's, but it's pretty much empty. It's not, it, does, it doesn't have anything else underneath it. It's like clickbait essentially, but in poetic form. And I I felt instinctually as I was reading the poetry, as I was listening to this music, it can't, it can't be just that. Like it can't just be Baroque ornament. There has to be something more to it. And I think this is it. It's, it's this getting at um, 
the impossibilities or the sort of irrational part of the human experience, whether it's in lyric poetry, like with all these contradictions of love that I was talking about, or in pastoral poetry, where you have the mirroring of people's lives in this kind of other fantasy world, or in epic, where you have these stories which are, are permeated by people's individual experiences of these big narratives, essentially. Um, and in both cases, taking those things out of context in a kind of miniature snippet allows for a contemplation of those inner worlds that don't necessarily make sense in the real world, but they're crucial for the human experience, for the, con for the ambiguities and contradictions of the human experience. So it's not just overtly ornamental kind of some sort of 17th century version of 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 the way that we're oversaturated with with uh data and just little shorts they're they they are short but there's there's something kind of very profound about them they're not just uh, a way to um overstimulate i guess yeah, that that's such a fabulous um, justification for the Baroque because you know coming at it from literary studies, the Baroque just always gets the bad name of, of uh, name of being the period of bad taste. And there's new really wonderful work that says you know working methodologically similarly to you that unpacks what is seen as just an oversaturation of almost sameness, right? Flattening it out to where it is clickbait on kind of repeat on steroids kind of thing and and doing what you're doing and other scholars of, of peeling back all the layers to understand it as a machine of multiplicity and variety that is so fundamental to, to all of the questions between the end of the 16th, 17th century and today. Um, so, so I'm really glad that you brought us into the kind of um, world of the madrigal and I have it in my head, you know, being a musician, but in my head, right, it works uh, visually thinking about the madrigal in a kind of one by one inch frame that, right, this kind of snippet, um, snippet insight, as you were describing. So your the book covers these these three different genres, and we'll talk about epic um, in its kind of epic context in, in just a second. So uh, lingering on the pastoral and um, the lyric, you raise this question of um, where the Monteverdi's variety in compositional practices intersects with the variety of human and human affect. And so I'm going to quote you again. This is from page 2042 of your book, where you say, the goal of such music was not, strictly speaking, verisimilitude, and this speaks to the representation um, part of your title. And then you continue, but, but, but rather the music was a stylized uh, representation of the human experience leading to the sense of marvel or meraviglia. Instead of deadening Monteverdi's poetic impulses, the poetry of the late 16th century invited the composer to subvert the verisimilar or put into words put into other words to find an artificial means to representation. And then you go on to, to explain in your study of the, the rhetoric of contraries, which is so much what, what um, Baroque poetry and Baroque music is about. It's not just about kind of flattening um, hyper hyper presence. Um, you, 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 will, you go on to explain that this, that this rhetoric of contraries plays out in, with poetry and music always again with the listener in mind in ways that kind of bring them, bring them on what it what sounds kind of like a harmonizing yellow brick road towards towards wonderment right but with but with very like salutary benefits so in these chapters 
you develop this extraordinary reading of the complexities of representing the kiss as just one of these many experiences of love that you ruminate on and you think about and you try to replay and you simply can't, but then you turn to art and you see that you can engage with some kind of uh, repeated version of this. Um, so given all of this attention right to affect in these pages, I'm curious um, what it was in, in your research and your studying this that consistently brought you back to the human, right? The fundamental figure that is so essential to experiencing all of these effects, but then also kind of confirming the production of their effects in, in, in being moved to wonder. So um, when you started the book, did you know that the human was going to be at the forefront or was it something as you were kind of writing, thinking as we do about humanist things, um, that, that that human human uh, necessity would would kind of repeat throughout? Yes. So um, I, I should say that that I, like pretty much every other person, um, had a lot of time to think about what it means to be human during the pandemic. Um, and what and the relationship between one's personal experience and the absolute necessity for interactions with other people. Um, that was that was something that uh, that I had a lot of time to think about. And I realized when I, that that this was actually quite important for thinking about representation as some a concept kind of in art history in general, all of the arts, basically, that representation, at least in this period, it wasn't just about kind of showing the world as it actually is. Like, I'm going to show you in a picture, I'm going to show you in a piece of music what what the, what the world is like, essentially. It's not just about that. It's actually also showing the world in ways that we wish it could be and the ways that our minds are able to create things that don't actually exist but are really actually fundamental for the human experience in the sense that it's not just about being rational but actually dealing with all of the things that our brains do which again this is something i'm sure everyone can relate to during periods of isolation as we did have for years um and that it, it kind of won't do to kind of uh ignore that part of ourselves essentially to to get rid of it to not uh acknowledge it or to suppress it somehow it sounds kind of ominous but um basically i i, I learned that the 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 kind of um internal contemplation paradoxically could also create um a kind of almost like a healing experience in terms of connecting with other people um and this is especially true just getting back to this idea of music that's unfamiliar. I mean, this was written by people who lived like 400, 500 years ago. So how do we actually connect there? What is, what is the thing that, that, that was the thread that keeps us um, together? And, and it's, it's funny. It's like, I realized that this, this whole idea of representing that, which is real, that, which is not, it's not really some kind of escapism really it's it's actually quite uh, on the other hand a, a a way to kind of live out our desire for connection uh, about various aspects of our of our lives so i wonder i'll, I'll i was going to give kind of one example of this 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 kind of um idea that that representation is not a straightforward thing especially not in this in this period it wasn't just i'm going to give you a landscape that actually looks like a landscape there's other things that have to do with kind of how we interact with the world that are much more complex let's say um 
So there, there was one particular piece, which I talk a little bit about in the book, but um, um, it's kind of a, it's a fascinating piece. It's, it's a madrigal from the sixth book of madrigals of Monteverdi on a text by Petrarch. So this is a very interesting connection between a, a poem that was written in the 14th century and then this madrigal, which was written in the 17th century. Um, it's called Oime Belviso. And this is um, Petrarch, the poet, meditating on the death of his beloved, Laura. Um, and what it really is, if it rep if this if the music represents something, um, it's grief essentially. And obviously, you get that from the poem. You get this description of Laura's beautiful face in the in, and you're you're supposed to be meditating upon this. Um, but the thing that that like the experience of love that I was talking about before, the thing that music is really good at is mimicking the kind of patterns of thought that happen when one feels these things, which aren't necessarily real. Grief, love, these are not things that we can completely experience from a rational perspective. If you lose someone that's close to you and everything practical has been taken care of, you're not done. You're not kind of over it immediately in the same in the same way that, um, you know, if you were if you lost somebody that you love. I mean, yes, there's all the practical things of life that ha that happen. But to suppress essentially the somewhat irrational patterns of thought that happen as a result of these really strong emotional reactions, emotional experiences, it's, it won't do to just sort of put them aside. So what, what Monteverdi does in this piece, which is amazing, he splits the ensemble. There's five voices. And he splits the text up into different little fragments. And the first the first word of the poem, oime, which is a kind of just um, like, oh, like, a, like it, it doesn't actually mean anything in particular. It's just sort of a word that has a sound that expresses somebody externalizing their breath and their emotions. That little that one word is given to two sopranos that keep cycling oime oime over and over again and then the other voices at the same time go on to describe her 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 beauty and her facial features so what you have is a kind of splitting of the psyche and turn into one group which is ruminating on one aspect and another group that's trying to keep things more rational even musically that's exactly what's happening the lower voices are the the stable thing that are keeping trying to keep this experience on the ground as it were but then the the rumination the repetition of this one little piece is broken away and given to two other singers that keeps going at the same time over and over again almost like a kind of throbbing process which mimics what it feels like to be grieving um so yes it's definitely in the text but the music brings it into this temporal realm that really transforms and and truly kind of makes the listeners they're they're along for the ride as it were mm -hmm. yeah it's the, i love that part of the book um <laughs> that, that was so just eloquently spelled out. Um, and also how the oime, right, that that repetition um, that divorces itself from the actual kind of progress of, of narration, right? But kind of getting lost at the same time that it joins the dialogue, but then it participates in the continuation of the song. It is so complex. So so I'm glad you brought us to grief because, um, you know, we, we've, been, <laughs> we've been talking about 
about love and grief. And now, you know, I, I, in this next question, I want to bring us really to the last two chapters of the book. And, um, you know, selfishly, I read this, these with the most enthusiasm, just, just, just being such a sucker for epic poetry, uh, precisely because of his representation. Yes, war, but really about love and grief and, and human um, existence. So, what I think, um, as a literary scholar, what I got out of this reading, really, especially, is that you you provide these nuanced approaches, right, to where you problematize what can be this oversimplification of generic lines between, say, epic and lyric. And in the literary tradition, there's lots of exciting scholarship going on about, you know, these lyric moments in epic, like, what do they do? So um, to quote you from page 176, you say... Musical setting could change the way in which almost every parameter of epic was perceived. The contrapuntal medium provided particularly apt, the contrapuntal medium proved particularly apt for the multiplicity of perspective, time, and place, which are so carefully balanced in epic verses. Composers could thus participate in the same process of tempering, whereby epic poets made sounds into images and brought the impossible into the realm of actuality. And so when I was reading um, your book and all of its beautifully articulated focus on the role of time and the multiplicity of perspectives across epic and music, I kept on coming back to uh, figures of memory um, and, and by kind of extension, figures of memory's reception in the body of the epic poet. And so epic is this wildly peculiar case in this regard because it pronounces a kind of dependency oftentimes right more imagined than it is real on the figure of the muse who like the marvelous can somehow right transcend time yet is herself a product of it and recalled in time and poetry so i'm wondering if you know if 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 it's your sense that monteverdi kind of thought about the simultaneity of perspectives embodied in the figure of the poet and its mouthpiece right that are at once so much as what you're saying that's happening in the music kind of past and present temporally speaking and yet present and absent in terms of kind of physical um, being. And so I guess my, my, my brain thinks that, of course, in, in opera, we'll have prologues that are delivered with allegorical figures that kind of take the sort of shape of the muse of sorts. But the madrigal in its kind of one by in, one inch frame and its autonomy in a way, as you've just described, but this feels really unique. So um, in the madrigal, is there space for the muse in this production of musical marvelous um and is there a relationship that, that that you see between kind of the muse the epic poet and the composer that you think is productive also to kind of think about most definitely yeah um so i guess i'll start with with um epic um epic is actually um a, a real challenge for a composer to set to music and it has to do with what you were talking about um epic is not um, it has different voices, as if to say that it's it's a it's a hybrid in terms of who who what is the mode of storytelling. There is a narrator. There's the the poet's voice or the muse, as you're saying, who is telling us what's happening. And then there's the characters who are actually doing things and also speak in their own voices. Um, and I guess, you know, if you're reading it, you can kind of interpret this as all in the narrator's voice. But I don't know, even if you're reading it, you do kind of get sucked into the dramatic part of epic poetry where there's actually things happening in real time. But then it gets, it always takes you back, kind of push and pull between storytelling, 
I'm going to tell you a story and here's the characters actually doing stuff and talking in their own voices. Um, and it kind of goes back and forth in that way. Um, and one of the things that's hard about setting that to music is that you need to honor those shifts in perspective sometimes. I mean, you can ignore it, I guess, if you if you want, but it becomes more interesting when you actually say, oh, who's talking right now? Is it the narrator? Is it the composer? Is it the characters in the story? What, what does it mean when we go from five voices to three voices or one voice to five voices or something like that? Is that a way to guide the listener in terms of how all these characters are interacting? And in the magical, as you're kind of um, hinting, you can suspend a particular moment if you wanted to and focus either on the, what the narrator is saying or on the inner life of the character, essentially. Um, and so you can you can focus on those moments of love and anguish and grief in epic, which are definitely there in Renaissance epic, but are not actually proper, I guess, to the epic mode. The epic mode is supposed to be about heroic storytelling. But what's fascinating is that not only do the Renaissance epic poets give a lot more airtime to love and grief of the characters, you get this emotional dimension of these characters, composers take that even one step further. You get this whole extraction of what it means to be abandoned or something like this. And you get this whole kind of thing. Um, but what what's amazing is that, that when you hear this stuff sung, you get the sense that composers are deliberately kind of focusing on what we can learn perhaps even more about what we can learn about how people feel things when their stories are told by other people versus when they tell their own stories. Because if you read a lot of the kind of work on, or the um, the contemporary books on, on poetry and literature in Italy, the marvelous is usually attached to narration, not to the dramatic representation. It's like, it's so much more magical when somebody gives you everything of the story. It's not just what they're doing and what they're saying. It's what did they feel? What did they think? What happened before? What happened after? And then you get that meta temporality of you, of a, of a, a reliving of it without being in it, which means paradoxically that you can actually see it from all the different angles. So that's what's kind of so marvelous about epic poetry itself. But when you, when you then have the performance of it and the setting of it, not only do you get this perspectival play that I was talking about, you also get this kind of triangulation between the listeners, the performers, and the people that they're embodying in the characters of the great, these, these characters from Epic, Tancredi, Armida, Clorinda, all of those, 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 those characters from Renaissance Epic. And the issue of, of muses and memory, which is really, really fascinating, um, is something that I've been thinking a little much more about. And I'm, I'm really glad that you, you asked about that. So the muses being the daughters of Zeus and Nemocene, the like the embodiment of memory, which is amazing. Um, mm. They like this. This is a fascinating connection between the poet and the muses. This is, of course, where we get the words museum, music, all of that, all of that sort of thing, being the place where the muses meet. Um, and I should mention that um, Tim Carter has a forthcoming book that really gets into this, the muse, and um, in in Monteverdi's Madrigals. But I'll give an example just just to kind of address what you're what you're asking, which is really a, a neat example. So this is a um, one one madrigal that I talk about in the book. It's a text by Battista Guarini. So not Tasso, not Marino, but uh, Guarini, whose whose music was set probably more than any other poet in this period. So it's um, 
the poem is called Con que suavita with what sweetness and it's it's really fascinating so it's a it's a it's a madrigal but it's one of these later madrigals that has uh orchestration and has instruments in it and it's actually for solo it's a solo soprano only one singer um, and this might have had a connection to the dedicatee of the book that it comes from. Um, uh, the dedicatee was Caterina de' Medici, who was Duchess of Mantua. It was uh, dedicated to, Monteverdi dedicated it to her. So there's some superimposition of her persona with this one soprano. But the crucial point here is that it's for soprano and a bunch of instruments and has a total of nine parts and divided into three choirs now there are nine muses. So, mm. and she is very much outnumbered. There's all of these string instruments that are organized into these choirs. Um, and there's a fascinating interaction between her alone and, and the rest of them. And and anyway, um, Tim has this, this theory about, about, the, uh, about the representation of the muses, but I'll just read the, the text and this will become perhaps a little bit more clear. So I'll read it in English. With what sweetness perfumed lips, I both kiss you and listen to you. But if I enjoy one pleasure, the other is taken from me. Why do your delights kill one another if sweetly my soul lives for both? What a pleasing harmony would you create, O oh sweet dear kisses? O oh dear sweet words, were you capable of both sweetnesses at once, kissing words and discoursing kisses? So the kind of conceit of this poem is clearly that you can't kiss and talk at the same time. And talking is what leads to the kissing and kissing is, uh, yeah. So there's this kind of tragedy, right, about this, which is very easily dismissed as a kind of Baroque conceit, like, oh, ha, 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 that's, that's witty, but it doesn't really need anything. However, if you take into account this other interpretation of time, memory, the muse, um, and you consider the kind of musical enactment that happens in the way the text is fragmented. So for instance, that line, what pleasing harmony would you create if you were able to have both the kisses and the words at once? Que suave armonia fareste. Now she says that to kind of half of the ensemble and then moves on to the other half and then they superimpose. So the implication of course is that she is saying, oh, what a sweet harmony you would create. And they're actually muse. The other muses are actually making the harmony. So yes, the text is sort of implying that this is impossible, but the music is telling you, no, this is possible. That's genius. <laughs> so genius. And also, right, what what uh, what harmony right, would you create? Another invitation of right something that just this lies outside of sound and poetry too, that that contributes to the Oh, this is so 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 marvelous. Um, well, that's that's very exciting. I to, um to know about about Tim Carter's book on on Muse and the Magical. So we'll have to we'll have to keep our eyes out for that. Um, ah, oh, tragic grief. Uh, but also love that we're that we're reaching here the the end of this wonderful conversation. Um, and it would be a disservice if our conversation is really about you know Polyphonian time if we didn't think about the the next generation of early modern listeners. And I always really love to end these conversations thinking about our students and um, wondering what your experience has been kind of teaching different elements of Monteverdi. Have you tested this on them? Uh, did they experience the marvelous, right? Can they, can they jive with music of, of centuries ago? And if so, right, what, what, what does the marvelous look like in a, in a music classroom today? 
Oh, that's a great question. So I think that um, in general, um, anything about madrigals or even operas, you were, you were, I know this kind of intersects with, with a lot of your own work, um, anything that is based in the mechanisms of storytelling, I find is very, very, a very useful way to, to engage students um, and to actually help them to understand that there are connections that can happen across time that you can actually feel in as strange as it is, you can feel connected to the way that someone else told a story 500 years ago. And that amazingly, that actually can tell you, a, they can teach you something about your own interactions with people sitting around you, how you interpret these kinds of narratives, how different media, different kinds of art, essentially, but the the, the material nature of them, when you go from one to the other, you can kind of see them in a different light, liter literally in some cases, but also just sort of intellectually. Um, and I think that, that that the material leap from one to another, which this period is great at doing, right? It's just like everything is paintings about words and words about sounds and sounds about architecture or whatever. Like they're, 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 it's, it's very much uh, in this, um, uh, in, in the rhetoric of, of this time, which as we've been talking is not just about being artificial. It's about interrogating what representation, artificiality, naturalness, all of those things are. Um, so I think that it's it when when it's when storytelling is at its basis, which a lot of this is, it it creates connections across time and it allows not only does this allow students to identify maybe with um people in the past, which is a huge goal, I think, at least personally, that I have for teaching any of this, um, but also to reconsider their relationships with their peers, which is a little scary, but I think it's healthy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very healthy, especially, I mean, I, I, something that I find, um, especially based on something you just said, right, that um, how do we interrogate the way that early modernists thought about the artificiality, right? I mean, our students who are in Renaissance classes, I find, apply these questions thinking about AI, right? The artificial intelligence, like artificiality, what is this in, in the world? And the Baroque is the most perfect laboratory for thinking through these questions. Um, so absolutely, that is exactly right. No, no, and and precisely, and the and the limits of what this is, in the sense that even the artificial can teach us, can show us what it means to be human, whether it's through a positive experience or whether it's through a negative experience. All of yeah. that will bring us back to what do we desire? What do we need? What are what are the things that that keep us going essentially? Exactly. Like conversations like these. I, I just I treasure this so much. Um, so as a as a as a sign off, you know, and always looking holding in our balance multiple temporalities, as did Tasso and as did Monteverdi. Um, I have to ask, you know, what what comes next in, in terms of research? We know that you have a book under contract with Cambridge University Press on the Lettera Amorosa musical um, love letters. Uh, are there other things cooking in the in the marvelous kitchen? <laughs> Marvelous kitchen. Well, I have to say that um, I I often joke about this, but it, there is some truth to it that that Monteverdi is kind of my my life partner in some senses. I mean, it's it's definitely long distance, but it's definitely long term. I think <laughs> actually that yeah, the students find that hilarious. You know, oh, I buy it. Yes, <laughs> I've had those thoughts. Yes, <laughs> but you know, you do you do definitely develop 
I, I don't, I, these are people who've lived so long ago, but you do definitely develop some kind of a relationship, especially with like, oh, I think I'm getting a sense of how he might've seen this. I don't, you know, there's so many things we don't know the farther back you go about people's lives, but that human connection to the past is, is so much of what drives anything that I do certainly and even in the in the new book on epistolary poetry i did find that i did kind of come back to monteverdi because of course he did write um settings of of love letters which is a whole representational um conundrum because you have one person who wrote the letter and another person who performs it and the issue of transfer of voice and everything is quite quite fascinating so i don't think that i'm going to leave monteverdi ever even if kind of conceptually i i might change the focus a little bit and, and move into to new territories. So I think, I think it's a long-term thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you feel the same way. Um, oh, Rosine, this has been such a pleasure. I can't thank you but enough. And I, I can't, um, you know, encourage our really listeners most enough to, to go read Monteverdi and the Marvelous, right? Listen to, listen to this music, experience the kind of the, the, the contrariness, the affects, the love, the grief, and um, really just, Thank you so much for, for the conversation. This has been wonderful. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Kate.